0: Hello, and welcome to Lambdaforms Radio. This episode is the audio version of my latest newsletter titled Recommendations slash A Newsletter About Newsletters. I want to start this letter by passing along some of the other music newsletters I subscribe to in part to cite my sources and give some context for my own writing. More importantly, because the recent lack of advertising revenue has led publications to either scale back their freelance budget or shutter entirely. Direct support is now the most effective way to help a writer stay afloat. After that, I'm going to mull over some ideas about what an increasing trend towards subscription models for individual artists and writers might mean. First, Penny Fractions by David Turner. Named in reference to the fractions of a cent earned from a single stream on streaming services, Turner focuses on the news of the week in the world of music streaming, Backed up by research to explain how and why the industry has reached its current state. The perspective is definitely more sympathetic to artists and smaller labels than it is to the streaming giants, but it treats all those subjects from an objective remove. There is also a focus on the labor struggles in the music industry, which I greatly appreciate. Water and Music by Cherie Hugh similar to Penny Fractions in that it focuses primarily on the business and technology side of the music industry, but Hugh is more versed in the language of startups and tech reporting. The writing style is definitely more indebted to business ease, which I'm not always fond of, but the actual material that Hugh writes about is very informative and is clearly backed up by research and experience. I'd recommend that any musician looking to stay ahead of the curve on how to survive in the digital world, give this one a read. Cabbages by Gary Suarez. While I first learned about his writing back when he was a reviewer on Metal Sucks, Suarez's bread and butter is writing about rap. The best thing about cabbages is that it holds no allegiance to a particular style, scene, or decade. Mainstream tracks, 90s, deep cuts, idiosyncratic oddballs, all fair game. But Suarez puts a particular emphasis on acts that might not make it into bigger publications. Not only does this mean that cabbages has something for everyone, the newsletter proves that hip-hop does too. Abundant Living by Zachary Lopez If I had to boil down Lopez's style, I'd describe it as informed contrarianism. Lopez seems to be writing three steps ahead of the consensus, finding pockets of nuance that other critics would trample over while rushing to agreement. This doesn't mean that Lopez is a spoil sport, just that he's invested in opening up new angles and ways of considering his topics. The newsletter is punk-adjacent, but not punk-exclusive. Trapital by Dan Runsey. I'd like to make a note that if any of these writers' names are being mispronounced, I sincerely apologize. This is the latest follow for me, so I don't have a full grasp on Runsey's work yet, but in short, it is a look at the business behind hip-hop culture. Given that rap is now the most important genre in popular music, writing like this that explores how the genre's biggest stars and labels intersect with the business world is very valuable. Now... The newsletter, as a form, has had a resurgence in the last few years. My perspective on exactly how we've reached this point is limited by my relative lack of experience in the field. I'm sure that the writers I've included above could offer a much more comprehensive view of the history. But as I see it, this is the latest step in the Internet's gradual transformation from social media to an atomized marketplace. Practically speaking, the internet is the same as the website Etsy. We are all either running a private booth at a local fair, or idling past on the way to set up our own. I worry that this sounds both obvious and needlessly dramatic, so in order to explain where I'm coming from, I'll focus on how I've seen this play out as it relates to the newsletter boom first, before bringing in some other examples. Fundamental to this outcome is the dual effect that social media has had on both publications and writers. Over the course of the last decade, Facebook became so central to people's interaction with the Internet that it gained an outsized influence over which publications would survive and which would fail. For example, the rise of clickbait headlines that had a better shot at going viral and thus gaining more metric engagement, likes, shares, views, clicks, etc., for the publication both on Facebook and their home site to encourage more content of the same variety. All of this engagement, however, was predicated on the structure of Facebook itself. If you've used Facebook for a prolonged period of time, or any other social media platform for that matter, you know that this structure is subject to change at any minute. New features are added and old ones are removed with equal swiftness. Everything from the color scheme to the layout of the site to the underlying algorithm that determines what posts arrive in your newsfeed and in which order are all subject to change with little warning. So when publications cut their budgets to focus on video content over text under the metrically reinforced belief that this would lead to better numbers on Facebook, they were building a manor on quicksand. I'll admit that when Facebook later de-emphasized video, I had a chuckle at how badly these companies had played themselves. But in truth, this is not a very funny outcome. People lost their jobs in droves. Of course, our current situation dwarfs that number of layoffs by an absurd magnitude, but it still felt like a shocking amount at the time. And freelancers had to scramble for new leads at other publications or dealt with tighter budgets at the ones that survived. It is worth noting that expanding into videos as well as podcasts has worked out great for some publications since those two forms allow for a lot more ad revenue and sponsorship opportunities, but only if those publications, like, say, The Ringer or Pitchfork, have a ton of capital from larger companies, in this case Spotify and Condé Nast, respectively, to throw at those mediums until they stick. Social Media also encouraged writers to develop their own followings and personal brands through that same system of metric incentives in the short term this helped drive traffic towards their writing on a particular site and in the long term this cultivated audience could also help net them future gigs Readers, in turn, can now easily follow their favorite writers, even as they jumped from sinking platform to sinking platform. As the larger hubs for writing fell away, this individualized attention from reader to writer became the only reliable link between the two. The individualized newsletter, then, funnels that amorphous social media following into an intimate and active readership. Free from the needs of larger publications, these newsletters allow writers to focus on their specific beats and skill sets. This sharpens the reader's sense of the writer. Though it is obviously just as mediated as any other platform, reading an email in your personal inbox feels direct, almost nostalgic or analog compared to the dizzying pace of the rest of the web. That feeling can then be monetized by the writer. Instead of subscribing to a magazine or a newspaper run by some faceless groups of unknowns in a boardroom, you are subscribing to David, Cherie, Gary, Zach, or Dan. Newsletters are very similar to the website. Band camp in this way. You are interacting about as directly as one can with the person responsible for the work you're buying. The middleman in both cases only serves as the setting, not the source this move towards individualized subscription to a specific creator is not unique to writing. Look, for example, at the way that video essayists and podcasters have relied on Patreon to foster a deeper connection with their audience and build a monthly passive income. Perhaps more illustratively, because what better weather vane for trends on the web do we have than the horny industrial complex, look at OnlyFans. I'll defer to the ringer for the details, but this subscription model has allowed adult performers to bypass the exploitative practices of larger studios and platforms like Pornhub in favor of a system that pays them directly to create personalized content for their audience. So you can see why, regardless of your profession, this move towards subscription models and personalized delivery is appealing. Not only does it offer a more intimate and focused relationship with your cultivated audience, it also recalls many of the familiar pitches for small businesses. You get to be your own boss, and the rewards for your work are entirely your own. You are doing DIY. You are rising and grinding. Hustle hard, dude. This same line was fed to drivers at Uber, Lyft, or any number of startups that rely on the labor of their users. And by now, it should be clear that this meritocratic ethos can be a front for opportunistic middlemen. Though they appear to offer direct communication, this latest wave of subscription platforms are not invisible, They are mediated spaces, each with their own architecture and limitations. The creators on these platforms haven't escaped from the umbrella they were under into open air. We've arrived under a bigger umbrella, one too high up to see the fabric of. The effect that I'm most concerned with here is how this disperses the creators on these sites. This kind of atomization, I believe, creates a power imbalance that generally doesn't skew in the favor of creators. In the case of a site like Tiny Letter, I'm not particularly paranoid. But the more popular this model becomes, the more we should be wary of who is building the platform and for what purpose, especially on services that bring in gobs of money. I still view this latest version of the web as a good development. An internet where everyone is either buying or selling is simply more honest than the duplicitous, utopian claims of social media. It is also a real necessity for many writers in particular, and I'm not going to outthink myself on whether people getting financial support from their audience is good or bad. It is even a model that I think more musicians should try to emulate in some way. Touring as we know it is years away from becoming viable. Creating new methods of promoting your work and getting paid for it are vital. Thank you for listening. More episodes soon.